1: I do think that what happened at the court is tremendously bad. I wonder how
0: long we're going to have these institutions at the rate we're undermining.
2: them. How much do you care? How long are you willing to be in this? Because we know for conservatives, the answer was half a century. So the question I think is whether people who are progressive are willing to match that.
3: This is the new era that we're in. From now on, according to the Supreme Court, gun laws get evaluated solely based on whether they are consistent with historical tradition.
1: Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. I am Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts for Slate, and this week has heaved up two January 6th committee hearings and some truly ground-shifting decisions from the highest court in the land. Even for those of us who've been pretty certain we knew what was coming on both the gun and abortion fronts, Thursday and Friday can only be described, at least in my view, as crushing days. Huge majorities of the country wanted Roe Preserved, huge majorities of the country favor significant gun safety regulations. Yet the six justices that comprise the ultra-conservative supermajority at the high court wants us to know not only that it's just not their job to follow public opinion, and on that point, by the way, they are descriptively correct, but also they don't really want to be bothered by gun death statistics, domestic violence, suicide rates, school shootings, any more than they really want to be bothered with the economic physical, and grinding mental hardship of having to bear children one cannot care for or afford. None of that matters, says this majority, lashing themselves to cherry-picked history and these bloodless inquiries that feel like they're right out of the pages of some dusty tome out of the pages of Middlemarch. Now, to the extent that anybody thought Supreme Court justices listened to amicus and understood that there is an ongoing burgeoning legitimacy problem, well, they don't. Gallup polling this week suggests that the Supreme Court's approval rating is at an all-time historic low, that's 25%, which is almost 15 points lower than the all-time historic low it hit last September. But here we go. This week, the High Court delivered a truly staggering warning that precedent, stare decisis, it all matters, except for the days when it just won't. Now, later on in the show, we're going to turn to the big gun rights decision in Bruin that came down on Thursday. It's a case that's proving to be a little tricky to interpret, but we will be in the safe good hands of Joseph Bloker, co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. After that... Slate Plus listeners will get to listen in as I talk with Mark Joseph Stern about a few of the week's big decisions that we couldn't get to in the main show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can go to slate.com/amicusplus to check it all out. Slate Plus members never hit a paywall on the website, enjoy all of our podcasts ad-free, and they get access to bonus segments not just from our show, but loads of other Slate shows like The Political Gabfest and Slow Burn. So go to slate.com slash amicusplus for more details. And as always, to our Slate Plus subscribers, thank you for supporting the journalism we do at the magazine. First... The long-awaited decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, an opinion that shows scant regard for either women or their health, an all-out overturning on Friday of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey by a court that has been pretty systematically constructed to do precisely this. Joining me now to help us understand how it all happened, what it all means what it'll mean going forward, is Mary Ziegler. She is one of the most prolific and thoughtful legal historians around issues of reproductive rights, and an indispensable read always, but especially today. Mary Ziegler is a law professor at the University of California, Davis, and author of Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the Present, and most recently, Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement, and the Fall of the Republican Establishment, Mary, welcome to Amicus, and I know, I know, I know how busy you are because I'm seeing your articles everywhere today, so thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I guess the first question I want to ask you is just a feelings ball question because you and I have done like briefings and Twitter spaces and like talks and talks and talks, About Dobbs all year, about SB8, about the leak. You were ready, I guess. I was ready, I guess. I didn't think this opinion was going to change, and change it did not. What are you saying to people who are kind of like gobsmacked experiencing this for the first time? Well,
2: I think that it's really difficult for people to imagine that a constitutional right could be taken away like this. I think it's also surprising to people that this could happen in this way, this quickly with this little kind of preparation. Um, And so I think it helps to understand the history that this is not for the people who've been within the anti-abortion movement, working on this, this is decades in the making. It also helps to know, I think that many progressives have underestimated that effort. They haven't understood it. They haven't paid attention to it. And so I think once you dig into that history, you'll see that people have been literally dedicating their lives to arrive at this moment for a long time and have been using a lot of sophistication to get there. So I'm both sympathetic, right? Because it is sort of unthinkable, even to me, right? I don't think I'm processing this as we speak. I think I'm feeling confused, numb, et cetera. But I think also, you know, the part of me that isn't surprised is the part that knows the deep history that brought us to this moment.
1: And I wonder, Mary, as somebody who's thought so much about both the deep history and the kind of doctrinal underpinnings of this, was there anything that you read as between Justice Alito's leaked draft from February, the one that we saw the first week in May, and the one that came down on Friday. In other words, I suspected there would be a lot of softening language, that things would be hived out in order to pick off a vote from Justice Kavanaugh, or Justice Barrett. Do you see any material difference between the draft we saw and the version we got Friday? And and maybe the follow-on question is anything that affects the law generally or is it just atmospherics?
2: The draft was remarkably unchanged. In my opinion, you know, so much so that things I was thinking of writing, I barely had to edit them because I would refer to lines in the draft that were unchanged. And these were often, you know, money lines, these were not little lines. So I think that the draft was not softened. There are many moments in the final opinion in Dobbs where the court is unapologetic about what it's doing and deliberately so. There's a very, I think, telling moment where Justice Alito says, we can't predict the consequences of doing this. But even if we could, ostensibly, we wouldn't care because it's not our job to care about popular opinion. It's not our job to care if we're damaging the legitimacy of the court, really. It's just our job to do whatever we think interpreting the law is. And I think that's very much the tone of the opinion. So I think Even the changes that were made didn't change the atmospherics really significantly. Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, I think, tries to do that, sort of a spin on the majority that's intended to be a kind of softening, a reassurance that essentially, one, other constitutional rights are safe, and two, there won't be any kind of drama around abortion going forward. He says essentially any questions about abortion going forward that could end up in the federal courts don't strike him as being very hard. So essentially nothing to see here, folks. But Justice Alito, I think, has essentially stood his ground. This was the draft, more or less the same one we saw in May with very few meaningful changes.
1: And Mary, the question that I think Everybody has. Certainly the one that I'm being barraged by is walk me through what this means. Walk me through what it means in states that have trigger laws, in states that have laws that need to be kind of ratified by elected officials, states that their laws go into effect today Talk of, you know, clinics closing, talk of people on the table at 1010 on Friday when the decision came down, not being able to procure an abortion. To the extent that you can project what this means sort of in the very near term, in the medium term, and then maybe in the longer term with the caveat that there are many, many states and it's all going to be different. Can you just walk us through how this dominoes out?
2: Well, we know that in the states with trigger laws, many of these laws will go into effect very quickly. There are some states that have sort of delay mechanisms. There has to be certification by the attorney general, for example, and then 30 days have to go by. Many states, even Friday, have already been banning abortion. I think South Dakota was the latest, but I'm sure there are more that have been happening in the immediate aftermath of the decision. That number will grow. In other states, there's more complexity. For example, Michigan has... Abortion on the ballot before voters directly. There's also state constitutional litigation unfolding in Michigan, so there'll be some states that are in kind of a holding pattern in the near term. And then, of course, this issue will be politically contested in a variety of places. Those include states that once had state constitutional protections for abortion but now no longer do, like I. Well, I'm I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but Iowa and likely Florida, there are states that have kind of complicated politics on abortion, where we'll see money pouring in nationally. That'll especially be true of states that have been regional outliers, where people have been traveling to get abortions. And we may see conflicts. I think President Biden flagged these potential conflicts in remarks in the aftermath of the decision, essentially saying that the right to travel is at stake. So it'll be interesting to see once trigger laws go into effect how far are states willing to go to enforce abortion laws? How far are they willing to go in terms of surveillance? How far are they willing to go in terms of regulating the conduct of people out of state? How far are they willing to go in regulating the line between speech and conduct? For example, people posting websites about how to perform an abortion at home or advertising abortion medication. We don't know the answers to these questions. I think it's fair to assume that you know contrary to what Justice Kavanaugh is telling us this is Pandora's box, right? So we have no idea where this is going to take us other than to imagine that it's going to be polarizing and it's going to be difficult for people who had not lived through the pre-Roe era to imagine.
1: And maybe just to follow on to that, Mary, because I think one of the things that we can say for certain about the pre-Roe era is that... More likely than not, the person who was targeted in jurisdictions where abortion was prohibited was the physician – We're in a different world now, right? Where it can be somebody who puts medication abortion pills in the mail. It can be somebody who, you know, uh, the famous case from SB 8 is the Uber driver who takes somebody to a clinic or somebody who does something across state lines. So I think one of the things that I see as materially different in Dobbs that maybe we haven't fully wrapped our heads around is that. The pregnant people themselves are going to be the targets, as you say, of surveillance and of sort of some of these vigilante schemes that are being put into effect in ways that really don't map onto the reality pre row. Absolutely. The availability
2: of medication even puts in play punishment for pregnant people. That's not happening now. And there's, I think, a decent amount should be said about the fact that the mainstream anti-abortion movement does not at this moment want to punish pregnant people. They've actually been fighting state legislators who want to do that, saying, no, no, don't do that. The people who do want to punish pregnant people, though, have more influence in the anti-abortion movement than they have historically. And I chalk much of that up to self-managed abortion because those people are saying essentially, "Okay, you don't want to punish pregnant people. You don't think you should. Granted. But what are you going to do when someone in Oklahoma gets abortion medication from a doctor in Europe and a pharmacist in India? are you going to just let that go? And I think that's going to be a difficult answer for many people, Republican lawmakers and people in the anti-abortion movement. So I think it's not only the case that we're seeing surveillance of a kind that was impossible in the pre-row era, although it's worth emphasizing that pregnant people were surveyed then too and forced to testify. But we're also, I think, going to see at least more of a push to punish pregnant people. I don't know if that's going to work yet. I think that's a conflict that is very unpredictable, but it's going to happen. The <laughs> conversations about punishing pregnant people directly are not over. It's also worth emphasizing that the folks who are being defined as aiders and abettors by many in the anti abortion movement is a much larger group of people than we would have seen in the pre roe era. The National Right to Life Committee, for example, recently put out a model bill that would define lots of things as criminal aiding and abetting, um, abortion doulas. Um, websites encouraging people to use abortion medications, you know, lots of things that come close to free speech or advocacy being defined as aiding or abetting. So the stakes of this are going to be high for a broader group of people,
1: I think. We are going to take a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors.
0: This podcast is sponsored by RAMP.
1: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets. Mary, you noted up top that Justice Kavanaugh did this kind of soothing Concurrence, Justice Alito much less soothing, as you said. Clarence Thomas not soothing at all, certainly putting in his concurrence that the next things to go are Obergefell, or Lawrence v. Texas, uh, Griswold, uh, just the entire basket of substantive due process, unenumerated privacy rights he's gunning for them. And I wonder how seriously you take that, or is that just Clarence Thomas speaking for Clarence Thomas? Well, It's a little bit of both, I think. Clarence Thomas,
2: I think, is sort of saying the quiet part out loud. He's admitting that if the court is being intellectually consistent about what it means by its approach to constitutional rights, this very specific idea of tradition and history, there's no reason that any of those other cases would be safe. I think anyone reading the court's opinion, except for maybe the disclaimer about other rights, or maybe someone who read Justice Kavanaugh's Concurrence in Isolation, would probably take away that same conclusion. So I, I think it's quite likely that there aren't the votes to move that way yet. But I think there probably are several, probably significant number of votes to move in that direction. And we know from past history that when the court issues disclaimers about what it's not going to do, it's usually because there's some serious thought that that's precisely what it's going to do. And often those disclaimers don't last for very long, right? They often have an expiration date. So I think back to marriage equality when in Lawrence versus Texas, the court was talking about same sex intimacy, there was essentially a disclaimer that this was not about marriage. Justice Scalia at the time said, you know, this is not about marriage only to the extent this opinion has nothing to do with logic or something I'm paraphrasing. And of course, Justice Scalia was right about his prediction that that decision would lead to a decision on marriage equality. And I think those predicting that this will eventually lead to other decisions, whether on marriage equality or birth control or something else, will be proven right too, although I doubt immediately, right? I think this is a time horizon question in terms of when Justice Thomas is able to get up to five in terms of reconsidering some of these other decisions.
1: And I guess I have to ask you about John Roberts, because I've been talking about John Roberts, comma the reasonable man, probably all term. His concurrence reads like a capitulation. I think he gets called out <laughs> by Justice Alito for um, you know, illogic, whatever the John Roberts, you know, preserver of the court's dignity and integrity and reputational interests, the John Roberts that was going to be steering us towards something moderate and tolerable, not in evidence in this Dobbs opinion.
2: Well, this is essentially John Roberts' swan song, right? This is John Roberts admitting that this is not his court, that people are not fundamentally not listening to him very often, and that he he may occasionally join majorities, obviously. I mean, like in this week's decision on guns, Bruin, Chief Justice Roberts was in lockstep with his colleagues. But his reputation as this sort of magician who could produce majorities out of thin air, I mean, is rightly going to take a hit because this is a case where he did not. He believed, and I think correctly, that Dobbs being decided as quickly as it was the way that it was would damage the court's legitimacy And his colleagues essentially responded, either, no, it won't, or more often, so what? So I think this is a signal, if we needed another one, that this is not John Robert's court and will not be John Robert's court for the foreseeable future.
1: And I think I have to ask you the theological question, because it's both, (laughs) as is always the case around reproductive rights, and again, you know this better than anybody, it's everywhere and nowhere you know i'm i'm thinking back to some of justice alito's language at oral argument when sonia sotomayor tried to suggest that these were theological issues not appropriate for resolution in the courts But I'm also thinking of all the ways in which, just having watched the briefings by Republican members of Congress who say they are now pushing for much, much more extreme uh, legislation, I guess I'm curious about your sense of where we put religion, faith, theology into an opinion that pretends to be absolutely blind to that
2: it's hard to say right one of the things that's been striking to me is that the, the anti-abortion movement is not a single religion movement um there are people who are opposed to abortion for secular reasons but it's obviously also true that if you look in recent years the anti-abortion movement has been more comfortable talking about itself as a faith-based movement that's been especially true when you've had both evangelicals and catholics working together sometimes with members of other faith communities and so i think it's certainly going to strike people as interesting, to say the least, that the court doesn't talk about the role of faith in this history. The court's, of course, use of history is kind of a problem in a lot of ways. The court leaves out pretty much any part of the history it does not want to talk about, right? Whether that's in the 19th century, whether that's reactions to Roe, whether that's you know, what we think we mean by the anti-abortion movement, all of that is so much messier and sometimes so much uglier than the court wants to acknowledge. So, I mean, this is another example, much like the gun case of a court proclaiming its fidelity to history, but only a certain kind of thinking about history.
1: And I guess my last question for you, Mary, although I have a hundred of them, is simply, uh, what next? Do you have a sense that this goose's midterm turnout? Do you have a sense that the 25% approval ratings just announced by Gallup, does any of this change anything? Or are we simply in a world where it feels like we're going to be kind of enthralled to this unelected juristocracy for a very long time? Well,
2: I, I think the answer is it's very hard to predict, right? So one thing as a historian, I'm always struck by is when Roe v. Wade came down, It was the third story on ABC News that night. It was not the top story. No one could have anticipated, I think, how we got where we are or the kind of backlash we saw because it wasn't a response just to the court. So the thing to remember about that is that, you know, to the extent there could be a backlash to this, it will depend on a lot of people. It will depend on politicians. It will depend on doctors. It will depend on the people listening to us right now. There's nothing that the Supreme Court controls about response to its decisions. We've seen that very clearly in Roe. Um, And no matter how bad or ridiculous a decision is, that doesn't dictate that there'll be a backlash either. So I don't know, right, if we'll be enthralled to a juristocracy, but I I can tell you that the decision about whether we will be is not the Supreme Court's, it's everyone else's.
1: And I always ask you this when we talk, but I'm going to ask it again. For folks who are trying to figure out Where best to put energies who are feeling, I think, that lethal combination of numb and hair on fire that you started with. What are you telling folks to do in terms of thinking through what the next couple of, as I said, days, months, years are going to look like and where to put energy and where to put time? I think
2: one place obviously is the state level. This is something I think progressives have neglected for a long time. State constitutions matter. State judges matter. Governors matter. These are the people who are going to decide whether pregnant people get punished. These are the people who are going to decide if there's a state constitutional right to some kind of reproductive justice in your state. So pay attention to those sort of, frankly, prosecutors, sheriffs, you know, the people who will be enforcing these laws. So At the local level, a lot can change. And so this is an area, I think, really for people to focus their energies. And then I think the other thing just historically to remember is that the way this happened is because conservatives were smart and they were willing to play the long game. So ask yourself if you care about this and you're not happy today, are you willing to do the same, right? This isn't going to necessarily be quick, especially if you're talking about meaningful federal protection. It may not work very well very soon. And so I guess the question that I would ask is how much does that bother you? How much do you care? How long are you willing to be in this? Because we know for conservatives, the answer was half a century. So the question I think is whether people who are progressive are willing to match that.
1: Mary Ziegler is a law professor at University of California Davis, and she is the author of I have to say multiple books that I think I told you this earlier this year, um, Mary. They sit on my bedside in a stack. They have been such an important way of thinking through um, this entire year in reproductive rights. Most recently, the book is Dollars for Life: The Anti Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. I cannot thank you enough on this business busy day. I know that this is something that you're going to be processing and absorbing for a long time to come, but I really want to thank you for giving us some of your very first takes here on Amicus. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back after these messages. So it was a big, big week for gun rights as the Supreme Court handed down on Thursday a six to three decision in a case we've all been waiting for called Bruin, striking down New York State's 109-year-old gun law that had required a showing of, quote, proper cause, we'll get to that, to get a concealed carry license. Laws like New York's exist in five other states, California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, and New Jersey, plus the District of Columbia. And together, those seven jurisdictions make up about 25% of the United States population. Now, the opinion in Bruin was written by Justice Clarence Thomas, who's been wanting to vindicate gun rights for a very long time. It dropped on his birthday, as I said on Thursday. And it not only expanded the kind of new Second Amendment doctrine that was laid out in Heller in 2008, but seems to have made it well nigh on impossible for states to really regulate firearms going forward. But maybe I'm wrong about that. And that's why we have Joseph Bloker here to set me straight. He is co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. He's published articles on the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, legal history in Harvard Law Review, Yale Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, many other places, including Slate.com. He is co-author of Free Speech Beyond on Words, published by NYU Press in 2017, and The Positive Second Amendment, Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller, published by Cambridge University Press in
3: 2018.
1: So first and foremost, Joseph, I know you're crazy busy, so thank you for making time.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Dahlia.
1: And I guess because you wrote about the future of Heller in 2018, here we are. I guess we're in the future of Heller. And I think maybe let's just start, if you would be so kind, as to lay out for people what it is that this century-old New York licensing scheme did and how it compares to the gun licensing schemes in other states that aren't the seven I just mentioned.
3: Sure, I'll do that by comparison of how the state laws look today, but also how they've looked in recent years, because we are kind of at the tail end of a remarkable deregulation of public carry at the state level. So I think it's important to see both where we are now and kind of where we've been. So as you laid out accurately what New York and uh, about a half dozen other states, including some populous ones like California do, is require people who want to carry a concealed handgun in public to first get a license, and in order to get a license, they must show good cause or proper cause, which New York courts have defined as basically being some kind of heightened need for self-defense. Like you traveled a lot of money, you've been threatened, you've got a stalker, etc. And what the court said in Bruin is that's too much. That involves too much discretion. It's too hard to satisfy. Those kinds of laws are now constitutionally questionable. But there are many other states that still impose permit requirements on public carrying and the Supreme Court expressly blessed those. So one category are the states that are known as shall issue states. And in these, you still have to get a license to carry a concealed handgun in public, but the criterion for doing that are more or less objective. Like, you have to have satisfy some training, you might have to prove that you don't have a disqualifying offense or something like that. If you check all those boxes, then you get your permit. So that's the sort of state of play. The court says those are okay, and so probably states like New York and California are going to try to move their laws more under that umbrella, try to make themselves fit into the shall issue category. But one thing that I think is really important to emphasize here, especially in light of the sort of historical historical approach that Justice Thomas takes for the majority here is that if you go back even to 1987 the majority of states were may issue 26 states were may issue in 1987 and 16 states totally prohibited concealed carry of handguns so uh, this is a relatively recent phenomenon in 87 there was one state Vermont where you could carry permitless that is you didn't need anything to carry a concealed handgun in public now it's more than 20 so this is kind of a confluence of massive deregulation at the state level and then expansion of the Second Amendment at the Supreme Court.
1: And can you talk for a minute about what Heller did, how it was expanded, and then, and I know you think about this harder than anyone, the just years in the wasteland when nothing happened at the Supreme Court, seemingly, I think because Justice Kennedy just couldn't quite bring himself to do anything, and this sort of Sense that that engendered that Justice Thomas was so frustrated at this kind of second class right that was the individual right to bear and keep arms.
3: I mean, in a sentence, what Heller did was confirm the view of Justice Thomas and the five justice majority in that case that the Second Amendment confers an individual right to keep and bear arms for certain private purposes like self-defense in the home. In other words, it's not limited to the organized militia, which, you know, today we might equate with the National Guard, but it's, it's kind of hard to know what the today national equivalent of that would be. That was the basic holding of Heller. But Heller also made very clear that a potentially wide range of gun regulation is perfectly constitutional. And in a paragraph that it seems was probably the price of getting Justice Kennedy's vote to make a majority, the court said, really without a lot of explanation, that nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast out on such long-standing prohibitions as those applying to felons, the mentally ill, sensitive places, dangerous and unusual weapons, concealed carry, basically describing kind of what is mainline gun regulation in the United States. And so for a decade plus after Heller, there was enormous amount of litigation in the lower courts, more than 1,500 cases. But most Second Amendment challenges were rejected. That is, most of those gun laws were upheld, much to the consternation and frustration of some of the justices on the court. So we saw a series of angry dissents from denial of cert from justice thomas from justice alito from justice scalia uh, sort of in in the early years there and bruin is sort of the second of two cases from new york on which the court did grant cert and hear oral argument the first of them which it heard two years ago was later mooted because new york changed the law that had been challenged but this is the first big second amendment case really in a decade and the fact that it's come out at this a remarkable moment wherein we're on the verge of having the first major federal legislation on gun regulation in 30 years. And by the way, the CDC data shows that we have had more gun deaths in 2020, which is the most recent data, than any year since the CDC started keeping track. So the moment is just so huge uh, for the balance of gun rights and regulation. And I wonder if you can talk for a minute
1: about there was coming out of Heller, and as you say, all this percolating doctrinal experimentation in the lower courts, a two-part test that Justice Clarence Thomas's majority opinion for six justices seems to have kicked the legs out of one part of the two-part test. And I wonder if you could just kind of walk us through how a court might have scrutinized this a week ago and how a court is going to scrutinize it tomorrow and what that means for the ability to prove that a gun regulation is somehow consistent with the nation's history, whatever the test that now exists?
3: I would say with due regard to the importance of New York's law standing on its own, this is actually the most important takeaway from the Supreme Court's decision is this new methodological approach that it has announced for how we're going to tell if not just this law but any gun law is consistent with the Second Amendment. And in announcing this test, the court has rejected the two-part framework which, as you say, has been unanimously adopted by the federal courts of appeal and applied for more than 10 years, again, in more than a thousand cases, as Justice Breyer points out in his dissent here, basically without incident. Now, that's a remarkable thing. Heller explicitly said, we're not going to resolve all this doctrinal stuff. We'll leave it to the lower courts to figure out. They did. They converged unanimously on this two-part framework, the two parts of which are pretty easy to state. The first question is, does this gun law in any way impact people or arms or activities that fall within the Second Amendment? Because some things don't. Heller says that, right? People who've been convicted of felonies, people who've been adjudicated mentally ill, they just don't come within the Second Amendment at all. Dangerous and unused weapons just don't come within the Second Amendment at all. So there's this threshold question, which is the same thing we do in other areas of constitutional law. Not all uses of words count as speech, libel, child pornography, securities fraud. They just don't get on the map, right? So that's step one. Step two is if the regulation does in some way impinge on things that are protected by the Second Amendment, then you go on as a court to evaluate whether the law is essentially justifiable in light of the burdens it imposes on a person's ability to keep and bear an arm. It's what we would usually call scrutiny. So that two-part framework, again, applied throughout the federal courts of appeal. The Supreme Court on Thursday came through and said, no, 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 there's too many steps, one too many step in this two-part framework actually actually. Everything has to be resolved solely by reference to historical tradition, and that is just a remarkable change, because what it does is say, from now on, empirical evidence about whether laws are effective— you know, today in saving lives, preventing terror, preventing domestic violence, th- that evidence, it's its hard to see how it fits into this historical test. Instead, you just have to look to the past. And Justice Thomas does that at great length. I think it is, for a committed originalist justice, not a particularly convincing performance of how our originalism can work. And Justice Breyer points this out in dissent as well. But in any event, this is the new era that we're in. From now on, According to Supreme Court, gun laws get evaluated solely based on whether they are consistent with historical tradition.
1: I want to be clear because you said it in the beginning, but let's say it again. We're not talking about semi-automatic weapons. We're talking about New York's handgun restriction for concealed carry. So I just, I feel like My mom is listening to this and she's freaking out, so let's be super clear. This is serious in many ways, but we'll figure that out in a minute. But I do want to ask you, because you just made this point, that the rest of the debate, for all intents and purposes, is a kind of history versus history smackdown. And we have Justice Breyer and Justice Thomas As you say, doing this unbelievable scuba dive amongst, you know, statutes from a cofillion years ago and how you read them. And I think that Justice Breyer, it seems to me, makes this point in his dissent. But, Joseph, the only people who are worse situated to do deep historical research, I mean, this is really weedy stuff, And the only people worse situated to do this work than judges are probably going to be state legislators, right?
3: A couple quick thoughts in response. First, to reemphasize that first point you made, which I think is so essential, is that this is not the death knell of gun regulation going forward. I think it is a disaster of constitutional reasoning. I don't look forward to teaching it in my class. But the court, again, is very clear, as it was in Heller, as it was in McDonald, there's still various forms of gun regulation that are constitutional. In fact, in a really interesting concurrence, Justice Kavanaugh and the chief justice literally cut and paste that paragraph which was inserted into Heller to win Kennedy's vote so it's like Justice Kennedy almost kind of reappears here and they r- repeat the reassurances of Heller and McDonald gun regulation is still okay there's a way to read this opinion relatively narrowly even the majority opinion Justice Thomas says when the plain text of the Constitution makes it clear that a person's activity is covered by the Second Amendment then the burden is on the government to show all this historical evidence Right. And you can imagine the argument that, look, this is a case just about carrying guns in public. The word bear in the Second Amendment, which is keep and bear, is just a right to carry. So that covers this. That covers this case. But there's nothing in the text of the Second Amendment, I think, that's super clear that, for example, High-capacity magazines are arms covered by the Second Amendment. I mean, that's not clear from the plain text. It might be arguable, but it's not clear from the plain text. So this may be narrower maybe than it seems. To your point about the difficulty of doing historical research, I mean, Heller itself is a good example here. Justice Scalia makes a lot of claims about how the words "bear arms were used in the founding era— Since then, historians have developed better, basically, big data tools for scraping newspapers and historical sources, and just literally counting. Like, we can look at millions of data points about how did people use the word "bear arms. This is a technique known as corpus linguistics. And corpus linguistics really casts a lot of doubt on claims that Justice Scalia, and for that matter, Justice Stevens in dissent, made, which I think just shows exactly your point. This history is really, really, really hard to do, even for professional historians with all the time in the world to engage in it. But the last thing I Say here is that the flaw th- that I see, at least in the majority opinion, it's not a lack of historical citations. I mean, there's 40 pages of of historical discussion here. The basic failure is just one of reasoning. As how do you analogize from these historical examples to today, and kind of what's the actual burden on the government? And Justice Thomas, as Justice Breyer points out, gives all kinds of reasons to distinguish away historical examples and say, oh, these are not analogous. These are not analogous. These are not analogous doesn't really say what it would take to show, for example, that a law from 1791 is relevantly similar to, for example, the current rules prohibiting you from carrying guns on airplanes, which, as you will guess, was not a major concern at the time the Second Amendment was ratified.
1: And I think it leads to claims on both sides that everybody is cherry picking and everyone is in bad faith. And it does raise this kind of question for me that is maybe too meta for the urgency of what just happened in Bruin. But I do wonder how good history is done. I mean, is everyone ultimately cherry picking? Is Breyer cherry picking as well? Or is this just kind of the fatal flaw of both arguing by history and then arguing by analogy to history. There's two steps there to get wrong.
3: I agree. And I have to say, I think it's the analogy step that's the most wrong here or the most faulty here. And Justice Breyer pushes the majority on this is like, look, you've told us that, you know, gun laws have to be evaluated by reference to text, history and tradition. Well, there are a lot of contemporary gun laws, most of them, most of the ones we regard as essential that don't have direct forebears in 1791. So federal law prohibits people who've been convicted of domestic violence crime from possessing guns, you won't find a 1791 law that says that because it wasn't even prosecuted as a crime, let alone one for which you could lose your guns. I don't expect judges to strike down that law on that basis. I think what they'll do instead is what then-Judge Barrett did in a dissenting opinion on the Seventh Circuit and say, history and common sense are in accord. We have always known that dangerous people can be disarmed in 1791. They had a different view of who was dangerous than we do today, but that principle provides the connective tissue, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's right. But I think it also shows why this supposedly constraining originalist approach just isn't constraining at all. Uh, You know, I mean, I can make that argument in two sentences. Another scholar or a judge who's considering this is going to go could go exactly the other way and say, no, no, no. We have to focus on just the groups that they disarmed at that time when even legal categories like felon didn't exist in the way they do today. So I think there's going to be a lot of this kind of intuitionism. I know it when I see it. This is or is not like this other thing. And that's just, again, I think a disaster for constitutional reasons. Reasoning.
1: And a disaster, as I said, for anyone who's trying to pick their way through how to craft a law going forward that could survive scrutiny. I do want to sort of have you answer straight on, other than these six or seven states that are clearly implicated, you know, effective today, how does this affect, you know, you've mentioned the shall issue schemes in other states. 43, I think, states have shall issue schemes. Does this affect them or is it more just a question of holy cow, they've just changed the test.
3: So the the court is, and actually Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence as well, very careful to say shall issue is fine. And the 43 that they count actually includes the 20 plus that require no permit at all. That's obviously not a Second Amendment violation. Whatever it is, is a matter of, you know, reasonable policy, totally separate question. I think the shall issue regimes, the court is very clear to say these are okay, unless... And they do actually kind of almost invite challenges here unless they are administered in such a way that, you know, there's enormous delays or too much expense or, you know, they could become so stringent that then they would raise Second Amendment problems. But we don't you know, that's not before us now. And I think rightly so. The court doesn't doesn't go quite that far. I guess I would say on that front that the difference between may issue and shall issue is is actually a little fuzzier than the supreme court makes it sound here there are states that fall within that 43 which actually do still have some kind of discretion in a licensing official to deny a gun to a person who, for example, lacks good moral character or who presents, it seems to present a threat or reasonable threat of danger to others. So that, that, it's a little mushier than just, you know, three categories of may issue, shall issue and, and permitless. But there's going to be a lot of litigation, I think, right at that intersection.
1: And and the other place, I guess there's going to be just a ton of bickering, is this question of what is a sensitive place? Because as you mentioned, this dicta from Heller carries over and it gets baked in again that there are sensitive places and you can still regulate there. And I remember talking to you after oral argument where it was like, is NYU, is Columbia, right? Is Times Square? Let's listen for a minute to Amy Coney Barrett. Can't we just say Times Square on New Year's Eve is a sensitive place? because now we've seen, you know, people are on top of each other. We've we've had experience with violence. So we're making the judgment. It's a sensitive place. And I guess my question for you is, does the action then move to If we stipulate that the U.S. Supreme Court is a sensitive place because justices work there, is this just going to become another iteration? We've now had the history fight. Now we're going to have a a side fight about what is a sensitive place and what isn't?
3: I think that the fight has already begun. I think it did at oral argument, really, um, when, as we just heard, the justices were trying to wrestle with, well, what are the sensitive places and kind of more deeply, what makes them sensitive? You know, we have sort of a building list of what places are sensitive, but no real theory about what connects them. Uh, and there's real dispute about not just what the list is, but why. I and mean, there may be different reasons why different kind of places are sensitive. This phrase, sensitive places, I should say, comes from the Heller decision, where in that paragraph, Justice Scalia says, these forms of longstanding prohibition are presumptively lawful. And then he lists schools and government buildings. Those are the two that we get from Heller. There frankly hasn't been a ton of litigation in this area. It's a pretty sleepy corner of Second Amendment doctrine. There's one big case involving the Capitol grounds in D.C., a case called Class from the D.C. Circuit, where the court upheld that as a sensitive place. Another case called Bonnady from the Tenth Circuit, where the court upheld a prohibition on guns in post offices and post office parking lots. But there's nothing like a full theory of like, well, okay, does that extend to NYU? Does it extend to the subway? Does it extend to, I mean, these are examples that came up at the oral argument. What about Giant Stadium? What about, you know, and the NYU campus, which is an actual, apparently litigated issue, whether NYU has a campus Now the Supreme Court justices have discussed it. I do think we're going to see a lot of attention there. And actually, I think this will be one area where we see legislative responses. So in those states whose may issue regimes may now go out the window, whether it's New York, California, New Jersey, etc. I think that they would, you know, they may respond by saying, okay, look, if we can't limit the class of people who carry guns outside their door in the first place, then we are going to have to put more limits on the places where they can carry them. You know, it may be that it's okay to have people carrying guns into, let's say, bars and restaurants, places where alcohol is served, which is legal in New York, if those people can only do it after they've had to get a permit where they had to show good cause. If we can't do the permitting, though, well, then maybe we have to say, sorry, we can't. If we can't draw that, that distinction to begin with, then maybe we are going to have to enumerate some more sensitive places.
1: I'm sitting here listening to you, Joseph, and remembering Justice Alito talking about the subways and all the ways that I died inside at the notion that folks on the F train in Brooklyn are all going to be Packing heat, but it doesn't seem as though we got huge clarity from the opinion on going forward what a sensitive place is.
3: I would say we got almost none other than some, a couple additions to the list. The court suggested that polling places, which in most states actually are not gun free zones unless they happen to be in a school or a place that's already gun free. It's a relatively short list of states actually that prohibit guns in polling places. But those legislative assemblies, um, you know, you can think about what happened in the Michigan legislature back in the spring of 2020 when armed mob invaded and forced the legislature to shut down early, later sparking the Michigan legislature to impose gun restrictions there. So again, it's, it's almost like getting data points and needing to figure out, well, what's the equation that kind of connects these things? What do these things have in common? And that's the part that we're really, I think, still missing. And to Justice Alito's dark vision from oral argument, I mean, it comes up again in his concurring opinion here, which closes with a really interesting line that I think captures part of this sort of awful symmetry of the gun debate. He says, Today, unfortunately, many Americans have good reason to fear that they will be victimized if they are unable to protect themselves. Now, you could take that sentence, cut and paste it, and put it into Justice Breyer's dissent, And because the point of gun regulation from the perspective of those who support it is to protect themselves, protect themselves from being victimized by gun violence. And what Justice Alito is sort of setting up here is a world where protecting yourself with guns is constitutionally you know, guaranteed. Protecting yourself with law is not. And that, to me, is just a distortion of how this debate really is. It's public safety and personal safety on both sides. And 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 that's what's so that's what's so hard about it. You know, the things that make handguns good for self-defense are exactly what make them good for criminals. They're concealable, easy to carry uh, and so on. And I I think it's important in analyzing this case or thinking about, you know, the legislation coming out of Congress to to think about self-defense and personal safety interests really on both sides of the debate.
1: Um, The part of me that didn't die over Dobbs and then again over the idea of people brandishing Guns on the F train just died when you said guns are largely permissible at polling places. So whatever remains of me will now ask this question, which is, um, you know, you mentioned that that second part of the test falls out. And that's the part where it seems like Justice Breyer just wants to sit. And he opens with the horrifying gun statistics you opened with. And just it's this kind of creed occur of this is insanity, right? I mean, he could be, you know, a legislator. He's so devastated at being kind of given the back of the hand and told none of that analysis matters. And in fact... There's a line in Justice Alito's Concurrence where he says, how does the dissent account for the fact that one of the mass shootings near the top of his list took place in Buffalo? The New York law at issue in this case obviously didn't stop that perpetrator. I mean, there's a level of really personal, um, almost vindictive, (laughs) here." his supposedly beloved colleague, Stephen Breyer, writing one of the very, very last dissents in a storied legal career. And from Justice Alito, you get this sense of almost personal, almost ad hominem dismissal of all of these real life consequences and worries that are clearly keeping Justice Breyer up at night. Uh, But it does raise this question of how do we think about you know, and this is obviously true in the Dobbs context, too, a court that's just doing unbelievable, piecemeal, complicated scholarly historical analysis, and then kind of waves off the reality of real world consequences and says, not our problem.
3: I mean, that's one of the things that I think to connect back to what we were saying earlier about the methodology the court has adopted here. It is just stunning how confident that is. I mean, in adopting this new historical test and then in the way that the court applies it, they have to first reject the unanimously adopted test across the federal courts of appeals, right? Just, we're going to junk that. Second, and this goes to the sort of Volito versus Breyer uh, dispute here, they have to junk legislative deference, right? We're not going to defer to the elected officials of New York, California, states which together comprise a quarter of the American population. We're going to toss that out too. And then finally, we have to reject these reams of history uh, which again just, it's, it's worth noting that the majority of Justice Thomas's opinion is dedicated not to sort of building the affirmative case that there is a right to carry guns outside the home without good cause which is really the right that they're claiming here but rather to distinguishing away all these historical examples which come in dozens of briefs in this case Justice Breyer actually even recounts some of them in his opinion although he's, he starts by focusing on the sort of contemporary data it's like there's so much work being done by sort of flipping presumptions and like and kind of hiding what is the standard for how many historical examples we have to give you like there's three colonies here and you say that's not enough so what if we had five like what what are we doing uh like how how many how many citations do we need and i have to say this area of gun regulation that is public carry has more historical work done on it than any other and so it's really hard to imagine how a lower court is going to analyze for example a Second Amendment challenge to a law that prohibits large-capacity magazines. Like, what? what is that historical record going to look like? Uh, it's just, a, I think, a hard question of judicial administration, let alone Second Amendment law.
1: And Joseph, I feel like this gets back into your doom loop that you described earlier of this complete failure of analogy or how malleable analogy becomes I don't want to say goodbye without pointing out that on the same day that Bruin comes down, the Senate passes the first piece of major gun control legislation in three decades. And whether you think that particular piece of legislation is sufficient or not, whether you think it's way too much or that they got it exactly right, I guess I'm curious, Joseph, what parts of this admittedly limited effort to start to enact meaningful gun control in the wake of horrific violence this year, after failing, failing, failing to do so, what parts of this are going to be susceptible to this new way of analyzing gun laws in the wake of Bruin?
3: I'm sure it'll all be challenged because gun laws always are. I'll give the negative and then the positive. The negative version is people will say, look, this is federal support for extreme risk laws, also known as red flag laws, which certainly were not on the books in 1791. Almost all of them have been adopted in the last five years. Therefore, not consistent with history. Therefore, unconstitutional. Now, that would be a huge change because no court anywhere in this country has struck down a red flag law thus far on Second Amendment grounds. I don't expect it to happen. I think, and this is the more positive version, that what we're going to see is justices doing what then Judge Barrett did in her dissent on the Seventh Circuit and saying, look, we have a longstanding principle of disarming dangerous people. Extreme risk laws are just one way to identify dangerous people. Likewise, with the closing of the boyfriend loophole, et cetera, et cetera. Like you just have to jump up a level of generality, essentially, to establish what the principle is and then kind of reapply it. I would hope and expect I think it's right that that would uphold everything, really, in the bill. I still don't think it's a good way to do constitutional law. I think it would be better if we could have stuck with the good old time two-part test, but I don't expect things to be struck down. And I think it's notable that, you know, within 12 hours of this opinion coming down, more than a dozen Republican senators join with Democrats to support the first major federal gun legislation, as you say, in 30 years. Now, It's also true to say it's a marginal step, and that's important, important to recognize. But I think it's also good to put this in context that Heller and Bruin and where we are on gun rights also began with these marginal steps. For more than two centuries, no gun law anywhere in this country was struck down in a federal case on Second Amendment grounds. And Heller really announced this brand new era of Second Amendment rights, which we're living in right now. But that took decades of work cataloged by Reva Siegel and other great scholars who could sort of explain exactly how those views changed um, to, to get us back onto a, maybe a more reasonable area, I think is going to require the same kind of marginal work.
1: Joseph Blocher is co-director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. He's published articles on the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, legal history in Harvard Law Review, Yale Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, many other places, including Slate.com. He is co-author of Free Speech Beyond Words, published by NYU Press in 2017 and The Positive Second Amendment, Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Joseph, I really want to thank you not just for making time for us today in a busy week, but actually for being on this podcast at exactly the time of year when your hero and mentor and also mine, Walter Dellinger, would have been here wrapping up the end of the term. So it actually means a ton to me that you are here and representing on behalf of him. So thank you very much for helping make sense of something that I think has not been really clearly explained this week.
3: Thank you so much, Dahlia, and thank you for the kind words about Walter. He was my hero.
1: And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in, and thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham, Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio, and Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts at Slate. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus next Saturday. Until then, take good care of yourselves.